Hello and welcome to the show, and an episode where we ask ourselves, are we overthinking this product management thing, or aren't we thinking enough? Whilst you're thinking about that, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can find thinkers great and small and hear what they think about building products or the companies and teams that build them. You can also find the podcast on all your favourite podcast apps, so make sure you subscribe now whilst it's top of mind. So yeah, if you want to hear about surviving the feature factory by applying product thinking to product thinking, and have an antidote to the constant stream of oversimplified bubblegum product advice, keep listening to One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is John Cutler. John's a former Nickelodeon producer, touring musician, and Egyptian rave promoter who's now made it to the top of the pyramid of product management as one of the most distinguished product voices on social media, as well as the author of his own newsletter, The Beautiful Mess, something that he's been trying to clean up for at least 16 years. John's currently donning his rubber gloves and apron as a product evangelist and coach at Amplitude, and rumour has it that some have dubbed him the premium version of Minder Products, James Mays. Hi John, how are you tonight? I'm gobsmacked <laughs> by that introduction. I'm doing well. I'm doing great. Hello from Santa Barbara. <laughs> Hello, Santa Barbara. And just for the record, it's me that says that you're the premium version of James Mace. I don't think I'll just anyone else. one person saying that, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we've got a lot to talk about tonight, but let's start with you. So just what does a product evangelist at Amplitude do day to day? I do a lot of product therapy sessions with product leaders. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't, I actually do, but that's not the bulk of the time uh, I spend. I write news, like blasts. I write our different playbooks. I do workshops for product teams all around the world. That's been very exciting. I write blog posts and I do the product therapy sessions, which I just spoke about, which are a lot of fun. Generally, the idea with a product evangelist in many companies is that you have to find this fine line between talking about the product and then talking about the broader space and the broader landscape. Yep. And I think sometimes some developer evangelists, they're so tied to a particular technology, so they, they'll spend most of the day talking about that technology because most of the people want to know about that technology. Yeah. A product evangelist at some place like Amplitude, our product's amazing. And I kind of joke that, it, that salespeople don't like it, but I sort of say the product sells itself. I don't mean that. It does, <laughs> just it does take work to sell. That allows me to spend a lot of my time talking about the broader landscape of product, prioritization, and strategy, and how to use data in ethical ways and how, in effective ways. So yeah, that's kind of the mix of my role day to day is workshops, all this type of content stuff, meeting with people, coaching, and then sort of threading the needle between our product and the broader world of product. It's interesting, actually, because I was at ProductCon the other day in London and uh, Amplitude, I think, were one of the sponsors. They, were, they had a stand in the foyer. There was a bunch of other product analytic tools and I basically tried to put the cat amongst the pigeons with just about any product analytics person that spoke to me by basically saying that I could see no difference between any of their products. And that definitely got a few, uh, I got a few reactions, but, uh, you know. Ouch. <laughs> but, well, realistically, yeah, not to go too deep into the product stuff. A lot of the products are kind of similar. Yeah. And I think that it's, th this is what I remind people too, when you're buying some kind of SaaS product. I think the company is the product. Yeah. So I, I see myself actually as part of our product. 
And that's why I'm actually okay being a product evangelist for a company like Amplitude, because I can put my product chops to use for doing that. So all the implementation teams and the customer success teams and the product evangelists that work there and the product managers and everyone else, HR, the whole thing are part of what you're buying into. So yeah, that's what I think we're really good at it. But I, I think you're right to some degree. Oh, don't tell the salespeople. They'll be, they'll <laughs> be sending you angry emails. But uh, yeah, no, I think it's fair <laughs> to say. I mean, we use Amplitude at work. Absolutely fine product. I've also used other products and they all do a good job as well. So I'll just have to emphasize that I'm not being sponsored by anyone. So I'm going to be as neutral, <laughs> as, neutral as Switzerland in this case. But what the amplitude get out of this? I mean, obviously, you're a strong voice in the community. You do a lot of coaching and you do a lot of advocacy work. But do they get like sales out of you? Do they get any kind of upside out of this? Or are you really there as a kind of community and awareness builder for people that maybe want to use a platform like those, but don't have to if they don't want to? Yeah. I say this with a lot of solidarity with all the community <laughs> folks and the people who do the content writers and other things. I absolutely think that there's a high return on investment for Amplitude to be involved with John Cutler. <laughs> That's why I'm a full-time <laughs> employee there. What I would say is a lot of these things are not as directly connectable in some ways. And community teams have this a lot too. You know, some of the best community teams in the world struggle to find those metrics that connect their work. But if you ask any brand person or if you ask anyone what's the power of a community, they'll absolutely agree that there's a power in community. So do I have problems connecting, you know, the ROI of my day-to-day -day activities? Sometimes, you know, when 3,000 people show up at a webinar, it's pretty clear that those people have given their emails and, you know, that's a lead. And so there's some kind of system for that. Yeah. I would say that, you know, some of this is a lot mushier in terms of the connection with value. Some people that knew I had joined Amplitude four years ago, now four years later, had an opportunity to buy a product at their company. And I just had happened to put it top of mind for them. So, oh, there you go. You know, it's kind of, it's uh, like to all the friends and the community things, we have this discussion about ROI all the time. I definitely think it's worth it. You just have to work a little bit more at connecting the two. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something that I've reflected on a little bit as well, just the sometimes quite difficult nature of trying to connect ROI. I mean, I work in the mental health space at the moment, and obviously there's a lot of benefits to doing that and providing that kind of content and that kind of product to people. But at the same time, it's very difficult sometimes to try and frame that in a way that, for example, CFOs are really interested in, because of course, it's a bit sort of fluffy in, you know, in financial terms, at least. So it's definitely an interesting one. Yeah. But your evangelism work, as you've touched on, obviously extends to Twitter, LinkedIn, all the socials. You've got a bunch of free <laughs> templates in Miro, which obviously everyone should go and have a look at. You've got your newsletter. But there are loads of newsletters out there these days. So if I allow you a brief moment of self-promotion, why should people subscribe to your newsletter or at the very least follow you on Twitter? They probably shouldn't. <laughs> no, no. I'm, so here's my general. About six years ago, I was working at a company called Pendo. Oh, yeah. And I started to write. And since then, I've written maybe seven or 800 blog posts. It's nearing, it's going to get up around 1,000, you know, in the next year or something. Oh, wow. And this is the advice I give to people about writing is that you sort of have two tracks in the beginning. either fully commit to wanting to be 
a much followed, much, you know, you're, you want to turn this into business. You have very specific goals around being a thought leader or whatever. <laughs> and I didn't take that track. I took the track about writing about the mess that I like to think about. Yeah. So I like to think about organizational dynamics. I like to think about challenging status quo ideas. Like I like the idea of connecting with someone who's trying to do that internally in their company as well. Yeah. And frankly, I never liked the people who would give this sort of bubblegum advice <laughs> and everyone would agree. And I think there's an absolute spot for that, especially if you're trying to learn in your product career and you're trying to build those things. So you could imagine even the newsletter I have right now is just a continuation of that journey. In 2020, I decided to tone down my writing and only write once a week, which I mostly keep to, except some weeks I write two or three posts still. And so that is what the beautiful mess is about is these sort of oddball ideas about organizational <laughs> design and strategy and sprinkled in with some actionable frameworks. But every actionable framework I have adds a layer of complexity that gets your mind going on it. I very rarely say, you know, just fill in these blanks. I'll always say, well, fill in these blanks, then ask these six questions, for example. Yeah. yeah so that's the general thought behind the newsletter. Not something that I put together is this you know, consolidated plan for world product domination or anything. It just sort of emerged <laughs> over time to do those things. So, But you describe product management via the newsletter name as the beautiful mess, as we just touched on as well. But on the other hand, there are plenty of Twitter thread bros out there at the moment with their perfectly formatted 280 character posts, laying down the truth bombs, almost looking like somehow they're just copying it from a template somehow. But, you know, but let's trust that they're not and that they're writing these all by hand and that they're doing it all from their own experience. With quill. <laughs> with a quill, yeah, with a quill. But they make product management look so simple. So were people like you and me just overcomplicating this stuff? I think we are to a degree. And this is something I've realized in the last couple months that you have to think about the audiences, just think about it as a product and think about the audiences of people and what they're trying to get done at that particular point. And I think it's legitimately true that there is a bunch of people trying to get a job as a product manager. One. And there's also a bunch of people who have to walk into a meeting and put together a roadmap. That's their goal. They want to write a roadmap. Yep. And there's also, frankly, a lot of more senior people who primarily want to get ahead in their career. <laughs> they want to take it to that next level to do things. So I think things, and this is why I have a lot of respect for folks like Lenny or other people who are doing these things that also by creating a community there too, they've managed to tap into very strong needs that people want to achieve. Now, I would say he's incredibly good at this. I don't think that's who you were referring to when you talk about people throwing out these threads. Oh, and no, stuff, no, no, not at all. Not at all. I don't want the eye of Sauron descending upon me. <laughs> <laughs> but what I would say is I think that there is a need for a lot of this. And I think that there's a lot of gatekeeping in product. Yep. And so I think that any effort to kind of simplify it and make it more approachable is definitely good. I think that the reverse happens with some of these very like sanguine bubblegum takes because it actually <laughs> is a weird form of gatekeeping. So ironically, in an effort to try to make it approachable, it actually makes it feel not approachable. Let's do that. But I think there is a strong need to open up the covers around product management, take away the mystery of it, and make it seem more approachable for people who are doing it. I think different content people do that well to varying degrees, but I think the intent is is well there. But I think that for me personally, even recently, 
it's been about discovering the who I really want to connect with and who I want to help. And so maybe I want to help this internal change agent trying to tweak their org, or I'm trying to help like that thoughtful systems thinking leader who doesn't really want to take the bubblegum advice. So I think it's all about kind of, it's like product. It's about finding your niche. But I do think we need to demystify product for people. No, I agree. But would you say you still have product market fit for your content? Or do you think that everyone's leaving you in droves for these thoughtful tweet thread people? Oh, well, I mean, if they are, then they can, they can try both. I mean, I'm not so sad about that particular thing, but <laughs> that, that's an interesting question. I, I think I play this as a long game too. I mean, people who follow, I, I mean, I've remembered over these last five years, people who would be just crazy about producing content for a year or so, and then just sort of dropped out and they decided to do a cohort course and make millions of dollars and never touch Twitter or second. And some people just like to write books and like let people worship them too. So like there's that <laughs> kind of niche of people to do things. And so I think it's, we all go in and out of product market fit, frankly, and we go out of product market fit with ourselves. There's sometimes where I'm like, oh my God, am I just this weird talking head <laughs> parody of myself? I mean, it's, ridiculous. I couldn't have said a more John thing ever. I mean, that's kind of like, it's, it's like a, I mean, Woody Allen without all the bad stuff that Woody Allen did. It's like sometimes like a Woody Allen skit, you know, <laughs> for me about thinking about it. And so sometimes we go out of fit with our own needs as people who share with the community. So that, that's kind of my thoughts on that. But have you ever considered just starting smashing out listicles or maybe even turning on your super follow button? I don't know what super follow is. I, <laughs> I'm of the belief you can only fit so much in your head. And so someone will say, well, have you done this like cohort course, or I took this course about how to write the best thread on Twitter, you should take it too. And I, I can't just, I can't fit it in my head. I've got a four-year-old. I have a pretty demanding job. That's the thing about being a full-time person versus these people who are dedicating all their time to this, or they're in a really cush job and pretty much still <laughs> put all their time into this. I can only fit so much in my head. I don't really know how super follow works. I do sometimes get tempted, though. There is a time of the morning, Sunday in the United States, there's a magic hour between about 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. in the morning, which I call the, like, the angst hour of the world, the angst hours of the world. And sometimes I am tempted between that time frame to publish a certain type of list just to prove I've got it still. I just want to make <laughs> sure that I've still... like. Can I still drop the Sunday morning angstful thing that gets people angsty. Because Sunday, people have a drink in their hand in Europe or coffee in their hand in the United States. It's like you hit them at just the right spot before they're going back to work on a Monday. Monday, they're going to be too bothered to pay any attention. But Sundays, sometimes I do get tempted to just prove I still got it with like a good thread to do it. <laughs> I will keep my eyes open. <laughs> but as an evangelist, you're speaking to a lot of teams. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of talk about good PMs and bad PMs and good teams and bad teams and good companies and bad companies, often from these aforementioned thread people. But if I were to ask you to put your finger in the air, how many companies you talk to do you think are working in a quote-unquote ideal way? Hmm. Awesome question. Well, it depends, of course. Oh, there you go. I'm the it depends guy. Couldn't say it any other way. I would add this. There are some companies that are highly effective that are an absolute shit show to go and work at. <laughs> and there are some companies that are not the best product organizations, but are really healthy, have a bunch of good people around, people who mean well. 
And so I will give you an example. There's companies that are trying to digitally transform that, you know, ounce for ounce or whatever, kilo, kilo or stone for stone (laughs) or whatever. If you were to think about these people, are they really good leaders? The answer is yes. They're absolutely thoughtful, skilled leaders in the room. Yep. Is the company not trying to dig out from a couple decades of working in a different way? The company's absolutely trying to do that. Can they do all these fancy ways of working? No. Right. But I'll tell you, the most thoughtful change agents and the people, the most skilled leaders often work at those companies. They just don't happen to have this like super savviness to do that. So it's a really hard question to answer because it's about health. It's about psychological safety. And then there's this sort of like, are they doing the practices that you would expect to work? And I'll give you another example. A lot of the manga or fang or whatever they call those companies now, the, the whatevers, some of those people are the most narrow focused life experience lacking, (laughs) monoculture embracing people in the world. And I say that with love. They've just been in these certain environments. And you ask like, well, how do you work? Well, you just, it's, they were just incompetent. We just fired them. Or like, do you look at the data? Well, of of course we look at the data because we need to get our OKR. Or like, what's wrong with the company? Well, obviously it's the leader that it's the problem. And they're going to fix it. So they have this certain view on the world. And so could we argue if we looked at the practices that they're doing all these advanced things? Yes. Would those same practices, would those same leaders even be able to successfully go and turn around a multinational powerful brand like a Lego or Ikea or someplace like that? No. You know why? Because they would walk in, they would be impatient. They haven't really necessarily built all their leadership flexibility yet yep. or whatever. So it's a really hard question to answer because it's about health and safety and the value we put on adopting certain practices. Yeah, that's funny, actually. I remember putting up a Twitter poll a while back about, like, just imagine that the PM for the Facebook like button came and worked at your organization. Like, would they have any idea what to do? Would they just fall at the first? Would they be the instant VP of product? And I think there was a real variety of opinions. But I remember a story that I heard once from a friend who said that they were looking to hire a product leader. They interviewed someone from Amazon. And they basically, not being Amazon themselves, were like, well, you know, well, what if we weren't doing things the way that Amazon did? And the product leader was like, well, I'd make it like Amazon did. It's like, well, okay, well, you might have a little bit of work to do there to try and bring some of your undoubted skill set to a company that is a million miles away. And obviously, that person also wasn't at Amazon when Amazon was the size of this company. So it does feel really... I think I agree a lot with what you say about this idea of of narrowness and just completely being closed in and in a bubble. Yeah. But you describe yourself, and you did earlier as well, as a systems thinker. Now, I'll say I've read Thinking in Systems before. It was quite a tough book. (laughs) But I know all about my stocks and flows, and I like to think I've got a good overview and try and zoom out as much as possible. But in the context of product management, how would you describe systems thinking in your context, and why is it helpful for product managers? Yeah, this is super important because to many people, systems thinking, they actually reflect it to just technical systems. You know, so if you yep. mention systems thinking, even among people who build or architect systems, they'll say, well, I can, you know, I think about systems that way. The way that I view systems thinking is about understanding it, the, the, some of the root definitions I use are situations where there's no clear root cause or cause, you know, you can, you can, Imagine that you're seeing cause and effect, 
but it's just the loosest interpretation of that. So yeah, you can see this reflected in a lot of the drawings that I have. It's a lot of loops <laughs> and it's a lot of self-reinforcing loops. And it's a lot of things where just because you fixed one part or one little node in the diagram does not mean you're going to fix the other things. Yep. So with that broad definition in mind, yeah, obviously there's books and stuff you can read about systems thinking. I think that what it relates to product is a great example is the ability to at least take a stab. Oh, good. You've got the book. That's awesome. It's to take a stab at thinking about a problem that you're trying to solve as instead of maybe like a linear flow, thinking about it as a number of self-reinforcing loops. So you could think about, you know, it'd be easy to think of a flat funnel into your product and you think, well, of course, people just follow the funnel down the line. So one version of systems thinking would be like, well, there's actually a couple interlocking loops and there's the loop of where they're deciding whether your product's worthwhile and then deciding whether they actually want it or their teammates want it. So I think that that's one sort of area, one type of definition for it. I think that the other, some of the more sort of complex aspects of it, when you get into complex adaptive systems and things, are really this ability to understand that you are part of the system itself. <laughs> so the idea that you're this sort of ability to step back and view these things. And I think that that's important if you're a product manager attempting to nudge your org in the right direction. There's a very mechanistic way to think of that where it's like, well, the problem is that leader sucks and I know what to do. And therefore, to 10x them, I'm going to do this thread and then I'm going to manage up to them and I'm going to make them like disappear like Wizard of Oz or something like that, like the Wild Witch of the Wex. And so a systems thinking view of that would be more like, well, I'm part of the system too. You know, I kind of, I'm having an impact on this situation. Other people are having an impact on the situation. What are... And it's sort of this multi-layered thinking. What, what is that leader trying to do? What needs are they trying to fill? What are they kind of optimizing for? And yeah, so without getting deep into systems thinking, because it's such a big, messy word, I think it's, it's kind of like the ability, it's an, another way to unravel these complex things that you're looking at. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that resonates for me from that is this idea that it's not just about you and your needs. And it's not even that your needs are the best. It's that everyone has their own needs and their own goals that they're trying to achieve. And ultimately, they, in theory, at least, should all ladder up to the success of the company. Right. But they're going to interact with each other in really different and interesting ways, which I think is obviously fascinating and, and complicated. Although, actually, as you were talking about that, for some reason, my mind drifted slightly to this idea of, uh, I think it was a YouTube video I watched the other day about how, if we're going to get all technical, that basically free will doesn't exist in a deterministic universe which means that basically all of our prioritization decisions have been made for us, right? So we should just sort of <laughs> strap in. Well, yeah. And I think one, just to add one thing, I think it also brings up the idea of what boundary you're looking at the thing. So a lot of product managers are kind of looking at their particular part of the product and it's this ability to go up and down the stack of systems and think about that. So a great example of this is most companies exist in an ecosystem of other companies. Yep. And some of those companies compete, but frankly, many of those companies are riding the same wave. And frankly, many of them are trying to tap into the same resource that exists for funding that particular industry. So it's very common as a product manager, you think, well, that company is my competitor. Right. But if you take a step back and look at the broader system, you'd say, well, there's a bunch of mental health type products that are riding this particular wave of wellness, and there's this source of money to be able to do it. And we've all kind of got some time frame to work in here. So I think it's it's meaningful for product when you think about the resolution that you're looking at the problem and the ability to kind of go up and down the stack 
And we typically think about those things as like, I really do like this idea of the opportunity solution tree as a teaching tool yeah. that Teresa Torres has. I think it's great. But I think very rarely are things as linear and tree-like as that. Most often things are much, much more like loop and network-like. So I don't know if that helps people give a, an impression of the systems thinking stuff. No, I mean, it helps me. So hopefully that'll help some people. But I guess back to that engagement and the ability to connect with people. Do you, I mean, you've just spoken basically about some fairly complicated topics or concepts, at least on a high level, like you've obviously not gone deep, but it's still, that's a weighty subject that we could probably do a very long podcast episode on. But do you worry that being thoughtful and somewhat esoteric like that makes it a little bit more or seem a little bit more theoretical or blue sky or impractical for some of the people like you touched on earlier, the people that just want a new way to prioritize their roadmap, for example. Absolutely. And so something that I've come to grips with even in the last year is that if you're a deep thinker type, it's sort of on you to realize that you have the mess and the thinking you need to do, and then just take a product perspective of it. Some people have different want different views into what you know to take a kind of database modeling thing, right? Like <laughs> you've got the underlying data and you have views of that particular data. So one way to think about it is that just because you delve down in the depths of these ideas, you know, the person you're trying to influence might have zero seconds to think about it on that level. So you need to think about, so you have two options. You can either partner with people in your company who are willing to take what you have and package it up. Or you can get good at packaging. Yeah. And so I think that the one, um, what the word of encouragement I would give to people who find themselves kind of mulling this stuff over in their companies is, A, you can be perfectly functional. Mem- you know, you can go head to head with any of these people if you want. <laughs> like you have the skills necessary to be a great product manager. And you will also need to learn to either partner with people to package up your thinking Or you will need to be able to step back and say, huh, what are they trying to achieve? What's the minimal amount of information that they're trying to achieve with that particular thing? And then what I would say, so this is in in contrast to, I think, the impression among a lot of people. They don't do the deep thinking. They just start with a really simple thing. They're just like, well, everyone's just, they just need the simple thing. So I'm just going to give them the simple thing to do it. And so I think that I I just want to make if you are the similar to me, the type to kind of overthink these things to give <laughs> some encouragement that it is possible to exist in the product world without boiling everything down into three bullets. Thing <laughs> <laughs> it all into 280 characters at a time. But I think it is really interesting what you say about almost having a translation layer. And I think that's something that is also really helpful or has been helpful for me. Like I came up as a developer, obviously thrown myself into product over the years and I'm not necessarily going to call myself anything as grand as a deep thinker, but I do like to think about stuff. And I think one of the things that has really helped me in my career as I've progressed through it is really being able to adapt my message, you know, the same content, the same point behind it, but just adapting it to whoever it is that's in front of you and not getting too stuck on specific terminology or specific ways of trying to explain things that maybe don't resonate with people. And I think actually, to some extent, that's something that I'd argue a lot of product people seem to be quite bad at just in general. They just right. go straight back to inspired. They go straight back to talking about outcomes over outputs and things that obviously make a lot of sense, but there has to be a way to actually make these resonate with people that haven't read the book and have no idea what you're talking about and ultimately have their eye on a different, hopefully complementary goal. Even if they've read the book, 
you know, so what I've seen is that people will give empowered or these types of books to their boss. And then the boss will come back and say, well, this is great. We do this already. I mean, this is, this sounds perfect. And the devil is in the details, right? That they have not yet experienced this way of working themselves. It's still kind of abstract for what they're supposed to be doing. It's powerful, meaning it's inspiring. I think that's why people love those books because it gets you jazzed up. It gets you excited and you can give it to a leader and the leader will be curious and they'll say, well, this sounds right. This sounds like what you're doing. But the reality day to day for a lot of these change agents is literally about show, don't tell, focus on the why, not the way. No one cares about whether you're doing continuous discovery, anything or OKRs or anything like that. You know, you better be able to walk into a business person at your company and say, you know, I think we're okay for the next year or two, but we're sitting on a little bit of a time bomb related to our cost of acquisition. If that continues to go up, then we're going to be in trouble. And I think we have to, you know, start placing some bets here, which are going to require understanding this new persona, which might be a good fit for these particular techniques. So the interesting thing is it's about applying product thinking to product thinking. (laughs) Right? Oh, there you go. And I think that that's the, that's the main thing that people, in my work, it's mostly about that is helping other change agents to kind of, you know, because Amplitude, someone will come and they want Amplitude and their company doesn't know yet that they want to work that way. Yeah. And so I have to help coach them to do that. And that's where I start with them. The why over the way, and you're going to have to show, not tell. And you better have a business case for this. No one cares about product practices except you and except the people who seem to care about it. You know, so most people don't care about it though. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yeah. It's very difficult to try and persuade people in the same way that you don't really like us as product people. We don't sit there normally listening intently as people start to detail their med pick methodologies or right, something. Yeah. yeah like we, we don't. Oh my God. You've got med pick going. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Tell me about how med pick works. I really want to know how you implement med pick. That's amazing. Uh, you know, right. They do not actually, I do get kind of interested in that. So I want like, but other than that, cause I just like frameworks and things like that, but yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, I'm fascinated by sales and other, you know, and marketing books. And it's something I actually recommend all product people do is they go and read the challenger sale. They go and read crossing the chasm. They go and read some other books about some other stuff and just make sure that they've got an understanding about what might be important to these other people as well, because all of these people all of these functions, they all have their own thought leaders. They all have their own Marty Kagans or their John Cutlers or their own Thread Bros. Like they've all got people that they're listening to, probably not all saying the same thing. So it all goes back to that system and that kind of network, I guess. Well, I mean, you, if you have not sat there and you're the one responsible for creating a go-to-market account list and incentive structure for the whole sales team, And had to have a discussion about how the product strategy is going to match that particular strategy and how literally this is going to mean the livelihood of a huge sales team. Yep. These people are not like inherently, they're really, really, really smart people who are trying to play this particular game that's been put out in front of them in the company. And so it's very easy to go in and say, but if you haven't been in that position or know people who've been in that position, it's very, it's very easy to assume that it's just about a lack of trust. Whereas I don't think it's, it's as much about trust as it is about like language barrier in some ways. That's my thought. No, absolutely. Well, talking of language, you recently said on Twitter that no one gets fired for over delivering and you famously coined the term feature factory. 
to describe companies that are all delivery all the time. So before we talk about that, I have to ask, have you ever personally worked in a feature factory? Yes. Hasn't everyone? Well, I don't know. I just thought maybe you were one of these kind of <laughs> ivory tower looking down on everything you survey. No, no, and you no. Just... Of course I have. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the funny, okay, backstory about that whole post, which will then make more sense to maybe what you're going to ask, is that that was meant as a joke. <laughs> that post was meant as a joke. So I was doing a research study for Medium. And every day they required me to go and get my phone out and record a video about what it's like to be a writer on Medium. And I remember saying to them something like, you know, I'm, I'm really sad that when I mention one of these listicles, they're more popular. <laughs> and so then the next day I said, well, you know, today I'm going to show you, I'm just going to write one of those. And so I went, and I was like, well, what, let me come up with this term. I mean, feature factories, like what's not to hate about that 12 signs or whatever. <laughs> and then I think it was two days later, it got picked up on, it was either like Reddit or, or one of those things. And it was like, you know, half a million views or more to do those things. But it was originally meant as a way for me, I believed everything I put in it, trust me. Yep. But it was almost like a parody of itself. I was trying to show Medium how much more powerful listicles could be. And then anyway, so the feature factory thing. Back to the topic at hand, apologies. <laughs> no, that's, that's, see, this is the gold content that people come to this podcast, not Lenny's podcast for. <laughs> but did you managed to ever change one of your feature factories that you worked in or did you just leave and go and work in a better place? I think I was able to nudge it. in the. And, and here's the funny thing. I actually don't think there's anything inherently wrong with shipping features. Right. And I try to tell this to all the change agent people that say they want to jump ahead to these outcome-driven roadmaps. And I say, well, look, have you? can you just start with just assuming that someone, maybe you one day, will think that it's okay to build exactly X? <laughs> your bet is to build X. And that's one thing I've realized since that feature factory post is that unless you create a system where it's safe enough for someone to have a build X type bet, one day it will come back to haunt you whether you like it or not. So it's actually less about it being... It, my thinking has evolved since then, right? So it's, it's much more about being clear about the bets you have. And so let's say the CEO says, I think we should build X. The right solution, the, the um, bridge solution is to say, interesting, I'm going to write up a one pager as if X is a potential option to pursue that. Yep. And then I'm going to show it to you. And then I'm going to walk you through writing a one pager and let's see what you think. And so you write the one pager and you literally put solution X in the lower right hand corner. And like, well, I thought you were going to write all about X. And it's like, well, no, to get to X, I just need to write this one. It's for me. It's for me, not you. You know, you, you don't have to like be a jerk about it. <laughs> and they look at it and they say, well, actually, this was pretty helpful. I mean, it outlined the why. I mean, this is really cool. You're still going to build X, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. We're going to build X. Sounds like that's your bet. That's your bet, right? CEO, I guess it's my bet. I mean, I called it a project before, but now you're calling it a bet. No, no, we just call it a bet, you know, because we never know whether it's going to work or not. Do you think we could set up a meeting in two months where we go back over that bet and see how it worked out, like based on this one pager? Yes. <laughs> Sounds reasonable. Okay, cool. Let me get that on the calendar right now. You put it on the calendar and you do these things. You run the bet. So back to that thing, what I realized many you know, years after the feature factory thing is that, of course, people respond to that post. No one wants to work in a, in a like shitty organization that doesn't worry about impact. But most organizations worry about impact. They just don't know how the impact that they care about relates to the product impact and product practices and techniques that you want to use. 
Yeah. And that was the big leap that came on in my mind um, to do that. So I don't know if that helps people sort of unravel that older idea of those things, but you got to create an environment where you can have ship X type bets. And it's all about the learning cycle and the coherence that's important, less about, you know, whether your features are at level 7.34 on the the tree of knowledge, <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah, I think it's really funny, actually, because I remember listening to a podcast a little while back. There are other podcasts out there, despite what I might try and normally tell you. But I was listening to a podcast about Amazon and obviously Amazon being one of the fangs or the mangas or whatever, talking about like how Jeff Bezos basically just invented Prime and said that you've got to do it and just go and work it out. And of course, these are one of the companies that people use as exemplars for the kind of big tech product thinking. And I'm sure that in many cases there are, but I think it's also fair to say that there's a lot of variation within the companies as well because they're so big. Oh, big tech is some of the biggest feature factories that exist. There's also a lot of promotion-driven development in big tech, which is primarily advocating to build X as the project that's going to get you a promotion, Yeah. right? And so even... You know, even Google recently realized that it had to kind of stress that it's about going through the motions versus what the output that you have. So the idea that big tech is super optimized for what big tech does, <laughs> and people have to remember that. And there's many more, there's many different models. In fact, some of, for example, some of the best B2B software as a service companies I've experienced were not in the Valley by any means. And they had much more sort of holistic practices, much more connection with their customers than any of those. So, you know, it, it's, th those are hyper-optimized for a certain thing. People have to remember that. No, absolutely. And I think it's very interesting what you say about measurement as well. So one of the things I think you tweeted about recently was how teams don't really spend any time measuring the impact of the work. They just do the work and then they move on. Right. And I guess you're going to say that that's not a good way to work because you tweeted about it. Is it even possible to be a truly effective product team whatever quote-unquote product team means. But like, is it possible to be an effective product team if you're not doing that, if you're not measuring the impact and you're just continually shipping, shipping, shipping? So I think the cases where that has been effective for teams is where the bet has largely been played. So what I mean by that is you'll find, for example, a great example is, let's say that you're in a pretty technical domain and you have one or two technology advancements, but largely the game has not changed. And you hire a bunch of people in your company that's played that game. And I would use like Snowflake, for example, or something like that. Yeah. Where, you know, they've reinvented in some ways the ways data warehousing works. But the people who founded Snowflake were actually pretty knowledgeable about data warehousing and it was pretty clear about the direction that the data warehouse would change. And there are massive competitors out there like Oracle and other people. They're competing against a sort of a known thing. I think there are environments like that where the bet's been largely played. The roadmap is not even all that. Uh, it might be like, we're going to add this twist to everything. Yep. Another example would be here in Santa Barbara, there's a company that did property management software that I worked at. Now, the fundamental accounting of property management software is not going to change. Their angle was a much more like consumer forward UX and then was related to other things that the company did. So when it came to the accounting thing, you think they're going to sit there and do a bunch of discovery and measure every little thing about the accounting software? No. <laughs> but they're probably going to look critically at that data model and say, we might, try to, we might try to lose a lot of this. So I think there are environments where you can build, 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 and that's just fine. You do that. But it's about that kind of core thesis of the company. 
And it's about the core idea and really understanding like what does, what is the risk here? And what is the risk you do? A great example, someone like Zoom. I don't know Zoom very well, but I would imagine that Zoom in the ramp up of the pandemic didn't need to worry that much about measuring anything. They needed to (laughs) know if the calls were working or not. Right. You know, did they want to spend a lot of time growth hacking Zoom? No, like the motion of Zoom was there, like that ball was rolling. But I would imagine, for example, if, you know, things get more competitive for Zoom and they need to think about things in a more holistic way, that then they will need some measurement and they won't be able to be like a feature factory to do it. So I think this is, we don't talk a lot about this, but I think that's the, the truth for a lot of things. And so being a good product leader is actually realizing what game you're playing. And a lot of people are good at this and a lot of people are not good at this. They, the game we're playing <laughs> is like, we're the first ever meetup app for you know knitters or something. It's like, no, you are not the first meetup app. And no, not for knitters, you know, like that's the thing. The, the knitting meetups are hot uh, here in Santa Barbara. It's just, I go there and hang out a lot. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, there you go. I'm trying to think of a wool or a needle-based joke. Uh, maybe I'll have to add that back in in post. But I think it's really interesting what you're saying there around basically playing the right game for the right time. And then you start to get into this kind of wartime, peacetime type mentality as well. Like, right. It's all very well sitting there doing loads of discovery. But if you're, I mean, I remember I worked at one company and like literally day one, I turned up and was told the money was running out and that we had almost no time left and runway was super short. And I just sort of sat there and thought, well, you know, I can do a couple of things. I mean, one of the things is I could just be super dogmatic and try and be as hyper Kagan as possible, or I can just be as pragmatic as possible and just try and do whatever needs to be done to help that company survive until it can get more funding or whatever needs to happen to it. And I think that being, I guess, flexible and pragmatic when you need to be, but still having principles and ideals feels like the right place to be. But obviously, when we go back to these people that are raised on a diet of Twitter bros talking about how this stuff is all easy and you should do this and only bad PMs do that. That's actually one thing that really gets me bad PMs, the concept of a bad PM. It's like, I'm sure that there are PMs that aren't doing so well at the moment because of whatever reason, but the whole concept of a bad PM seems to make it almost personal or like a, a, a fixed personality trait, which I just, I have no truck with that at all. Yeah, I, I'm similar in that it's also, I, I always joke about the following is that I think that in Silicon Valley, especially it's fundamental attribution everywhere. So in Silicon Valley, people underestimate all the tailwinds and privilege that they've experienced being those things. And a great example is a friend who recently was at Google and went to a startup and said, I can't like, it never dawned on me how all these developer tools and platforms actually came to exist that I was using. And they described, for example, that at Google being a junior, junior person, they found themselves way more effective than they were finally were as a senior, senior person joining a particular startup. And they basically said, you know, I underestimated all the tailwinds and all the structure that existed in that company and all the incentives that existed in those companies. Yep. Similarly, I also think that people in big companies tend to maybe underestimate or they overestimate the sort of like badness of everyone. <laughs> and they also underestimate maybe their ability to shift their immediate surroundings. So so they, they, they're not going to change their company, that, but they probably could do a fair amount to make their little bubble of it a lot better. So I think that both sides of that particular thing carry a certain amount of fundamental attribution bias to do it. 
But it doesn't help, I think, when these things are taken out of context and, you know, these sort of hard rules with good and bad and things, because it, it um, I mean, recently someone told me a great story of like a very well-known uh, Silicon Valley leader who is loved by all, who attempted to go to a major mega brand that's actually the best in what they do, and they were completely ineffective. <laughs> and then someone came that was raised up through that company and was much more effective um, working on that. I would add one more thing about startups. You know, everyone talks about these big companies and these slow, older companies. But imagine if you're a company of 30,000 people and you're in the middle of a six to eight year transformation. Yep. And you think, oh my God, these slow companies, like, oh, this is so terrible. Guarantee you there are 500 person startups that are in the middle of a four to seven year transformation too. So if you think about it as just a function of size, a lot of these big companies that are easy to make fun of are actually proportionately doing a better job of improving their cultures than all like the startups that people talk about and love. So that's another bit of context for people. Oh, that's definitely a thought provoker. But when it comes to changing the teams, like you just said, like changing within a certain realm within the company, and obviously smaller company, maybe that realm's quite a large part of the company, maybe in a bigger company, much smaller part. But I think you're right that it's possible to change bits of team or certain working practices. But do you feel that in many cases, those changes, those kind of local changes are not necessarily really going to help because the company as a whole is just pulling in a completely different direction? Like in that sort of situation, is there any winning or is it just about making it as comfortable as you can, like a, I don't know, like a cancer patient or something? The winning could be for your career. The winning could be for the career of the people around you. I mean, the idea that we owe anything to these companies, I'm sorry, but it's like, it really forces you to think about, I, I, let's just go back to the people dispensing advice. One thing a lot of those people have right is that they are attempting to help people get ahead in their careers. Yeah. And so one thing that I've had to work a lot about with the messaging and my stuff, it can be kind of messy about what am I talking about? Am I talking about the org or the CEO or what you're trying to improve or, you know, organizational health and organizational psychology and stuff is a pretty nebulous type of thing. Right. But I think that for a lot of people, you know, your ability to control your surroundings could help you learn in your career, could help you improve your resume to improve things. And, you know, if in, you're not going to save your whole company. Most <laughs> people will not be the ones that will save their whole company, but you can definitely make your surroundings a more functional place to work with, which I think is important. Yeah, 100%. And certainly in my past, when I've worked in less than ideal situations, I've always tried to learn something from it. Yeah. It's that kind of strong growth mindset we should all have, John, right? You know, we can't all be uh, fixed mindset people like some we've seen. Well, I think that's the funny thing about it. Some of the people tweeting about these growth mindsets are taking a very fixed mindset approach to a growth mindset. So I don't know. There's that. Again, I'm always going to make it more complicated. I understand that I'm this trend <laughs> of my answers, but I always joke that I'm, on, I'm the on second thought leader. <laughs> Sorry. So everyone needs a niche, right? You've got your niche. You're going to cross that chasm yeah. one day. A thought fast follower. Well, not, you're not a naught leader like me. That's the most important I'm thing. Not you're not me. a naught leader like me. <laughs> now, with the caveat that all situations are different, and I can already tell where this answer is going to go based on what we just said, but let's try it anyway. We obviously can't distill everything that you've done, all of the service that you've given into one short piece of advice. But I'm going to ask you to, anyway to give one piece of advice for a product manager working in a situation like we've just described, 
either the company's not very good or it's a challenging market or the runway's really short or they can't do all the stuff they want to do. Whatever it is, let's just assume they're in a generically less than ideal situation. They've tried some other people's Twitter advice. That didn't work. What are you going to tell them to do? So I do have a very prescriptive sequence for this, and I'll talk people through it. There you go. I'm going to give. I'm going to thread thread bro you up right now. It's <laughs> going. To, it's going to, there's going to be flames arriving from what I'm doing. No, I'm going to. No, I do have a particular bit of advice for this. The first thing is you have to come to peace with yourself. So there's a great book called Getting to Yes with Yourself by William Urey, or there's some other books about this. But the number one thing that you notice at first is that there might be some imbalance with your own needs that are being met in that particular environment. And you have to get super clear with what the hell's going on inside. And to give you a very personal example, a lot of times I think my self-esteem was low. And so it was really important to me to be right about a particular practice or something. And in retrospect, that was much more about my need to be right versus changing the org. I also would come to grips with the fact that I was just freaking bored. Some people don't want to admit they're bored. I'd be in a company. I'd be like, I just need more novelty. So you have to come to grips with yourself to do those particular things. I think that the second thing about that is you need to connect with the people around you without any agenda. So you need to connect with those other people in the company that you're trying to influence without like, oh, I want you to read this book or I'm trying to get, you know, move forward or do whatever those things. But a lot of people who are change agents are actually not being very thoughtful or empathetic to the people about them. And so I think that's the second thing. The third thing, you almost need to be like the, the archaeologist or the ethnographer of your company. So <laughs> before you go charging in for these particular change efforts and what you're doing, you need to really understand what the hell is going on in your company. What's the sort of system of your particular company? And I think a lot of people miss this step too. So what they do is they go in, they're like, well, I think I have a diagnosis. I'm just going to go ahead and march in. And then you get to some realities like, guess what? We've got a six-month runway just to the realization you came in. None of these things are always apparent. Or guess what? There's one member of the board who, no matter what happens, goes in and tells the CEO what to do at every board meeting. And none of the good plans that ever get dreamed up ever happen because that board member has, there's a power play uh, father-son figure going on with the CEO. (laughs) Learn that too. And so you've got to be the archaeologist and determine really what the hell is going on in your company. The next that you have to do is perfect your pitch. So by this, what I mean is back to the why versus the way. It is not, well, we've got to do customer discovery, everyone. It is more like, hey, there is a new persona that we're trying to work with. We don't know a lot about them. I think that our goal and what success would look like is we are a lot more confident with our product decisions. So I propose that we try some customer discovery experiments for the next week or two or three, and then like reflect on whether they worked. Very tight pitch. Just be a product pitch the way you do it. Right. And then finally, not to take everyone's time to roll off the, the plan is basically, I'll send you this list later and so you put it in the notes or whatever. The final thing is start with safe to fail hacks, things that are just show versus tell that don't rock the boat too much. You get a foothold with those, then you can start more involved hacks that involve more people, that kind of more commitment, and then scale the things that work. You never know what will work. I I joke with someone, probably 20% of any of the change hacks that I've ever tried took hold, but the ones that took hold, I would have never predicted. Example, there's a stupid confluence page I just made with a coworker of mine at Amplitude that is a grid of different personas in Amplitude. I've never had luck talking about it in this way. 
But funnily enough, there's something about this grid that I look at the analytics and people are looking at it now. You never, you can't predict some of the things that are going to have the impact. And now there's like traction with that particular thing that you're doing. Then finally, know when to leave. <laughs> know when to get the hell out and have, and basically there's a certain point where you will beat yourself up and you'll blame it yourself for everything. If you've done everything I've talked about before, you should be able to proceed in confidence to the idea of leaving. You did the best you could. The worst experience I've had was going into companies and getting those steps mixed up and really doing a half-assed job of change. Yeah. And then leaving and being like, I coulda, woulda, shoulda. I could have, I could have been nicer. I could have been more thoughtful about the people around you. So if you do the steps in that order, you get and things aren't working, give yourself six to twelve months, start interviewing, and then get the hell out of there. No, absolutely. And I think one thing that I take from that is from my own career as well is like, it's important not to doubt yourself. I mean, obviously, you're going to doubt yourself in the sense that if things aren't going well, you'll always be sitting there thinking, am I doing everything okay? Right. And I've talked sometimes about this kind of negative career death spiral that you get where like you have this kind of going back to sort of systems thinking, you've got this kind of self-reinforcing loop of negative behavior and negativity and defensiveness that just gets, makes you worse and worse and worse and then you end up leaving kind of under a cloud but i think yeah you're absolutely right like knowing how far to take it and how and when to leave i think is really important because some people back to the the twitter people might sit there and say oh well if you do that you've failed like a good leader would have they would have done something about that they would have taken control right but i do think that it's fair to say that in some cases there's only so far you can go like you say yeah, the lead, I would call it, someone jokes, it calls it managerism. I would call it leaderism too. In the United States, there's definitely, there's definitely a mental model, which always basically rationalizes that a better leader could have pulled the thing out. You know, the better leader could have done that. Yeah. In other countries, frankly, this is a cultural thing because in other companies, they don't have maybe a little bit more collectivist cultures. They don't necessarily go to that kind of hero's journey, leader hero's journey that we do in the United States to do these things. And the one, the one antidote to that, um, that I would mention is that, you know, there, there is, I do think there is someone as a trained leader who can maybe handle a dysfunctional situation to a point, but think back on your career of the number of really like <laughs> any of those amazing leaders, where were they before? What didn't work out for them before? You know? So yeah. I think that it's um you have to be gentle with yourself. An accountability partner can help too to basically walk you through the steps that I said and to remind you like, hey, you said that if those things weren't working in the next six months that you would start looking for a job because we tend to like slip into a bit of drudgery, you know. We we slip into to the the bad place when we, we don't have an accountability partner. Yes, we do. Well, I think in the last few minutes, we've basically made every product manager a better product manager. <laughs> and I'm going to see if I can turn this into a 280 character. Oh, you should. We should invent an AI Twitter product person. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I have all these. They're already these there, fan- John. They're already there. They'll just pick it up. That, that'll be good. going to license these for other people to tweet about them things. AI is going to be able to mimic this whole conversation in just a little while. So I want to get, I want to seed the AI before we go too deep uh, into this stuff. Give me a product, give me John Cutler advice on the product problem, Dolly. <laughs> there you go. John Cutler.ai coming to a, an app store near you soon. It depends. When? It, it depends. Right. 
<laughs> so where can people find you after this then if they want to find out more about any of the stuff we've spoken about tonight? Find out about your evangelism, check out your Miro templates, talk about systems thinking, or see if they can get tickets to an Egyptian rave? Oh, yeah, the Egyptian raves. We didn't talk about that. <laughs> it was all for a girl. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> the best way is Twitter. I, I don't, I mean, you could, um, LinkedIn and Twitter are pretty much what can fit into, the, into my head <laughs> to do those things. So you could reach out on Twitter. I do try to get back to all the DMs on Twitter to do that. And then you could sign up for the newsletter and you get these good things like, it doesn't cost anything and I'll send out a link to people like check out this, uh, you know, board with a bunch of things and templates. And I think that the newsletter is turning out to be like the main way I communicate anything beyond 280 characters uh, to do those things. No TikTok yet. If I was an experimental thought leader, I would have already been embracing TikTok, <laughs> but I haven't gone there yet. <laughs> one day, one day. All right. Anyway, I'll link that all in and uh, hopefully people will form an orderly queue in your direction and come pray at the evangelist altar there you go well that's been a fantastic chat so obviously really glad we could find some time in your busy schedule to provide the antidote to cliche product thinking obviously we'll stay in touch but as for now thanks for taking the time yeah thank you as always thanks for listening i hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful if you did again i can only encourage you to pop over to one night in product.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.